0: This is How to Read. I'm Milan.
1: And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Lam-Yu Maria Bo, whose work focuses on translation and literary connections between the United States and East Asia. This episode is about the hidden politics of translation. During the Cold War, the U.S. and Chinese governments didn't drop bombs on each other, that they did drop translated works of literature. In fact, national governments put a lot of effort into creating translations that covertly served their political agendas. In the case of the U.S., this meant emphasizing values like freedom and self-reliance, with which they hoped to win the hearts and minds of Chinese readers. But while propaganda is meant to convey one simple message, Lamu Maria Bo argues that literature can't be reduced to a single meaning. And meanings multiply even more in translation.
0: Lan Maria Bo, welcome.
2: Hi Milan, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited for our conversation. Um, so the topic that we're going to talk about today is the the hidden politics of translation um, and I think like when you go into a bookshop or when you, you know, are thinking about sort of um, books in translation, like it's easy to take for granted, like some books are translated, some aren't. Um, Mm -hmm. But I understand that your research is really about cases where books being translated is actually something that national governments are having a hand in, um, you know, really like, Get certain things getting translated. Yes. So that there's something kind of political, even just in the sense of like what books get translated at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you tell me a bit more about that? Like, how do governments intervene? What do they do?
2: Yeah. So, my work actually is from mid 20th century Cold War when um, war was pretty much a matter of ideas and words. Rather than of military force
0: okay, so we're not talking like World War II tanks and planes we're talking a war a war of ideas
2: exactly, and when you are fighting a war of ideas, translation becomes very important. So I study the ideological war that has been largely ignored in American scholarship between America and China. Um, many people have written extensive monographs on the u s Soviet side of things. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Because I think, yeah, when when people hear Cold War, I think the most obvious sort of like warring opposite sides, it's like the U.S. and Russia. Exactly. But so you're interested in the U.S. and China.
2: U.S. and China. Um, and I mean, it was the other superpower you know um and america felt like it had lost china that was a phrase you know in the 1960s and 70s we've lost china so like what the us government decided they had to do was that they had to launch an all out campaign of propaganda basically um uh, where they were just going to inundate the chinese speaking world with periodicals with novels with movies um with pamphlets some of them literally flown in and dropped into China, like by packages.
0: Oh wow! Um, okay. To tell
2: people like in Chinese, of course, about you know the horrors of communism and how they should fight the government and how they sh- like America is the beacon of freedom. And so, translation was a massive part of this Cold War ideological effort mm-hmm. on both sides.
0: And so, when we're we're saying ideologies, are we joking? So you've mentioned communism, and then. On the other side, is it capitalism or democracy? Like what? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think the word there, they would sometimes use the word democracy. I think what they mean is liberalism. Okay. Um,
0: and what does that mean? Because that's one of those big isms. I never really know what it means.
2: Indeed. I think it means that people have civil rights that are protected by the government and that these rights are the reason that government exists to protect the freedoms of the people.
0: So that's the liberalism that the U.S. was kind of seen to exemplify.
2: Yes, that it was the leader of the free world. So if you look at the list of books that were translated by the U.S. government into Chinese at the time, they were all things that like really celebrated American, I don't know, the quote unquote American way of life, you know, um, you have people like um, like Ernest Hemingway. You had people like um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. You had people like Emerson. Um,
0: so these are all American writers yeah. that have a certain kind of, or maybe at least the way the American government viewed it, like they're exemplifying American life, the best parts of American life.
2: Exactly.
0: Uh, it sounds like you are primarily interested in not just all translation, like not all books that are translated, but specifically literature. Is that right?
2: Yes. So um, why
0: literature, like what, what is it about literature that the translations of them of those works are really interesting?
2: What drew me to this project in the first place is that trying to translate a novel, like making the novel say one thing, um, is infamously difficult that's why the field of literary studies exists
0: right because even without translation it's like yeah. you can talk all day about what a novel means or different mm-hmm. people's yeah interpretations exactly
2: what it. is the symbolism what is the language here <laughs> what is the significance go close reading right what's the significance of the commas yeah of the dialogue um and so, so-
0: yeah so that's amplified in translation that kind of it, it never just says one thing
2: Yes. And mm. that translation can even work against the author's interpretation at times. Okay. Um, it does not even adhere to their singular viewpoint.
0: Interesting. Do you have a f- kind of favorite example of that?
2: Mm. So um, I think it's worth talking about um, this one Chinese writer translator by the name of Eileen Chang, um, who was hired by the U.S. government um, to translate Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea.
0: Okay. So, so tell me more about her and tell me a bit more about The Old Man in the Sea.
2: Sure. So um, Eileen Chang is widely known within East Asian studies as one of the like, most famous or most interesting um, modernist writers of 20th century China. Um, she grew up speaking English, um, lived in Shanghai for most of her life, knew she was not going to survive the communist takeover, so fled to Hong Kong. Um, and there was penniless until she ran into um, U.S. government officials who found in Eileen Chang, like, oh my goodness, this diamond in the rough. Um, She already had a reputation and was well-loved. How are you, celebrity author, here, down on your luck? You want to work as a translator for us. And if you do, we'll give you a visa to the U.S. And so um, they were ecstatic.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Why did they ask her then to translate Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea.
2: Yeah, so um, Hemingway was an interesting case because he had just won the Nobel Prize, largely because of Old Man in the Sea, Um, and so was one of the most famous American writers internationally at the time. He was, however, a little bit too international for the U.S. government's tastes. You know, like he eventually lived the rest of his life out in Cuba. So uh, but... he
0: himself was not really a nationalist.
2: No, not quite at all, actually. But he, he wrote really interesting um, literary works that could be very open to interpretation. And some of the strongest interpretations of those are self-reliance.
0: Okay. So that sort of, we were talking earlier about sort of like American values, American life, yes. freedom, is self-reliance another one of those things that the American government really wanted to kind of present itself as? Like, ah, oh, people are yes. self-reliant and that's a good thing.
2: Yes. I would say even more than self-reliant, I would say the word individualism. Okay. Yeah. And the old man of the sea, Santiago, the main character, you know, just represents this hardworking individual souls, just him and the ocean, you know, it's elemental, it's primary. Mm. Um,
0: so I haven't read this book. Is it literally just about an old man and the sea?
2: <laughs> yes, it's an old man <laughs> okay. who goes out deep sea fishing. He catches a marlin and he basically decides he's going to bring that marlin back to shore, but it becomes much harder than he thought it was. And he, he dies in the attempt, but it feels deeply noble like it's this it's a story of man fish ocean and it's just it's a it's a soul-searching journey of the self
0: okay so so i think i'm getting a sense of like the sort of the the individualism the self-reliance the the freedom in some sense that this this novel embodied um represented to the u.s government um so uh the translator is eileen chang is that right yes yeah so so What did Eileen Chang do in her role as translator? Did she just do the kind of nationalistic thing?
2: Well, see, she was a deep admirer of Hemingway's style, just writer to writer. So she tried very hard to mimic it. I can read one sentence so that you can hear it.
0: That would be great. Um, So yeah, a sentence from Hemingway.
2: Yeah, here's the original Hemingway. Um, In the book, this is when Santiago, um, before he goes on his, you know, Life and Death Journey is like talking with the little boy that he's been training as his apprentice. And the boy says this about a memory he has in the old man's boat. He says, I can remember the tail slapping and banging and the thwart breaking and the noise of the clubbing. I can remember you throwing me into the bow where the wet coiled lines were and feeling the whole boat shiver and the noise of you clubbing him, the fish, like chopping a tree down and the sweet blood smell all over me. Now listen and I think in particular listen to that ping ping sound, like the ing sound that is the present progressive translated into Chinese. Yeah, clubbing and yeah. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like this. Um, rand the too yippola. 就像砍树一样, 我浑身都, um,
0: so I heard quite a few ing sounds mm-hmm. in what you were saying, but presumably yeah. ing in Chinese does not have that same kind of present continuous meaning that it does in English. So what what was going on there in the Chinese?
2: Indeed, I think so she just made she added a lot of like words that were not there in the English. I think to preserve the style, to preserve like the sort of the effect of just hearing the same sound over and over again. Mm.
0: So so those ing sounds that we were hearing, they don't necessarily mm. add to the meaning of that sentence in the translation, mm-hmm. but it is more about the sound and the repetition of the sound throughout that, that sentence. Is that right? Yes.
2: And I think the important piece for this book was that, Hemingway himself believed this and Eileen Chang believed this too. The message of the book was its style. Was its ability to be free from like strong, I don't know, like very overt content. The the book's about a man and the sea and the fish.
0: Right. The way you described the plot, it didn't actually seem like it was about very much. No offense.
2: (laughs) Right. And so that, but that was part of the, part of the point that it could be so free was emblematic of American freedom. And so when Eileen Chang decided, I'm going to translate that, I'm going to just translate style, not necessarily translate content, I think she was actually staying true to this sentiment.
0: Okay. So, yeah, so she, you know, we've talked about the kind of like the value of freedom that the American government wanted to embody, but actually what she picked up on in Hemingway was a different kind of freedom that was actually due Mm -hmm. with kind of style and the freedom to just kind of have sounds that don't totally makes sense is that yes right
2: yes to have well words that could be free from meaning
0: mm. that's so interesting so it's not that she was kind of like contradicting the kind of the values of freedom or even maybe the kind of like nationalistic goal of this whole translation project but she did kind of locate that freedom and translate it in a way that wasn't necessarily about like the message of the novel or the sort of
2: Indeed. I think it pushed the boundaries of what that freedom meant or was supposed to mean, according to the U.S. government.
0: Um, I mean, so I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, literature and translation in general, like, um, you know, on balance, do you think it's a good thing to have these translations, um, even when there's an agenda attached to them, maybe many people's agendas attached to them? Um, Is that a good thing? Is it? It is are there ever cases where it is you think it would be better that the work had not been translated?
2: Oh no, I would not say that. I would say that hmm so the um the analogy I was thinking of is that whenever someone does a translation, it's like when someone does a remake of a movie, each new translation is trying to give a new interpretation of a text. And I think that when these new interpretations come with political agendas attached, um, they become fascinating windows into a whole variety of isms that are operating at the time, be it nationalism or liberalism or communism, Um, a literary text becomes fascinating beyond just itself, right? There's, of course, all the interesting things that the text is doing. But then there's also all the ways that people are expecting this text to move in the world.
0: Lamu you, Maria Bo. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Milán. This was a pleasure.
1: That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to two bonus clips, one in which Maria explains how the Chinese government translated works about American racism, to show the injustice of American ideology, and another in which she gives her advice for reading literature in translation.
0: To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at howtoreadnow. This episode was produced by me, Milanta Lunen,
1: And by me, Olivia Branscom. With editorial assistance from me, Eleanor Roth-Hessen. From me, Mansi Garnani. And from me, Abby Rooney. Our theme music is by Pottington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.